<clears throat> Several years ago, I had as a special acquaintance a good friend and a good friend, an ironic priesthood age boy from whom I learned many of life's special lessons. He came from what we commonly refer to as a good family, but his parents seemed to take the heart of the gospel for granted. They were willing to attend most of their meetings on Sunday if it was convenient. They were warm people and friendly, always receptive to the brethren and sisters who came to their home. But I doubt if they had family prayer very often, and I am sure family home evening was something occasionally discussed but seldom experienced. With no real personal attention, the children were allowed to come and go as they pleased. On one occasion, my young friend told me he was sure that his parents loved him, but oh, how he wished they cared about him. You know, to a young person there can be a difference. He said he wished just once, as he went out of the door, they would ask him where he was going and when he would be home. He wanted them to give him some guidelines. He confessed that he wasn't always sure of the judgments that were left to him, if only they had cared enough. Now, years later, the offspring of this family have experienced the birth of illegitimate children, divorce in their own marriages, runaways, drug addiction, and most everything else can be tragic in our lives. Today I'd like to visit with the parents about some concerns I believe we share together. As we read the newspapers, we become justifiably concerned over what is happening around us. There is a growing concern among our people as we see the prophecies of times past being unfolded before our very eyes. Some have a feeling of frustration, anxiety, anger, and, yes, even fear. But remember that Paul, in his letters to Timothy, counseled, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. May I suggest the steps we can take that will dispel fear and bring peace and power are really very simple. The teachings of the gospel are not complicated. They are not hard to understand. They need not be confusing. Let us not be blinded by the craftiness of men. Nephi once said that because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. Jacob put it another way when he said that they became blinded because they were continually looking beyond the mark in their search for answers. They didn't believe in the simplicity of the gospel teachings. Yes, it is true that a family beset with trials and concerns seems to be the constant pattern of our mortal existence. However true this fact may be, it need not, it must not, have an adverse influence in our lives. Children are saved and families are exalted by participating in some very simple gospel experiences. Let us listen to the reassuring words of the Lord as we try to analyze what we can do. He said, But learn that he who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. Could this be our answer? I find in these scriptures some very clear instructions and comforting promises. 
May I discuss just one of many possibilities with you. Learn of me, he said, and you shall have peace in me. We've spoken often of where we can best learn of him. Of course, it still is and always shall be in the home. This is the main purpose for which the Lord established the organization of the family and home, that therein we might teach each other, especially the little children, to love the Savior and understand and live his teachings. As you consider the importance of teaching your little ones, have you ever thought in depth on the following scriptural passages? And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto them, because they have offended my little ones. They shall be severed from the ordinances of mine house. Their basket shall not be full, their houses and their barns shall perish, and they themselves shall be despised by those who flattered them. They shall not have right to the priesthood, nor their posterity after them from generation to generation. Might it not be an offense of the greatest magnitude if we don't teach them of him, if we don't teach them? to listen to his words, and to walk in the meekness of his Spirit. Let us ponder that in our hearts. As we consider how we might better learn of him and teach of him, may I suggest one of the great blessings your family may be missing out on is the simple experience of reading the scriptures together daily. We read in Deuteronomy, and these words which I command thee this day shalt be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. As I have traveled to the stakes of the Church, I have found many dedicated parents who gather their family about them daily to study the revelations of the Lord as recorded in the Holy Scriptures. I remember one family of twelve children who studied together daily in two groups, one for the older and another for the younger in their family. Think of the time and effort this has taken over the years. Think how the blessings to this family have multiplied as many of their children have now reached adulthood and are raising young families of their own. I was in another home where ten children, all young, were given a daily treat of the scriptures. I know of a mother alone with four children. She has them get ready early for bed and reads to them from the scriptures before they go to sleep each night. What a blessing for thoughtful parents to shower on their most important responsibility, their little ones. There shouldn't be, there mustn't be one family in this church who doesn't take the time to read from the scriptures every day. Every family can do it in their own way. I have a testimony of this. May I relate a personal experience from the Peterson family? Some years ago, after wrestling with the problem for some time, my wife and I, sensing the urgency of our parental charge, devised a new battle plan. You see, up to that point, Satan had been winning the battle of should we or should we not read the scriptures together in the Peterson home. We had tried off and on for years with no sustained success. Our big problem was that someone or something always interrupted our schedule. 
With a 17-year spread in our children's ages, we felt we had a special challenge. As we studied and prayed over it, we concluded that the best time for our family of girls to read would be when no one else wanted our time. Since the older girls had to be in seminary by 7 a.m., our controllable time had to be early. We decided on 6.15 in the morning. This would be a challenge to get teenage support. The idea was good. Its implementation was most difficult, and it still is. Our family is still struggling. Our great new plan had its birth one hot August day in Phoenix, Arizona. My wife suggested we give them a whole month to think about it and prepare for it. We went about their mental preparation in a very positive way. The plan was to start the first day of school in early September. To their protests that it was impossible to have their heads all filled with rollers in time or that it was not likely they would feel happy so early in the morning, that they might be late for seminary or they might not have time to eat breakfast either, we replied very cheerfully that we knew they were clever enough to cope with any minor problems that might arise. At its announcement, we also told the girls we had been praying for guidance in this family problem. This made it easier because they had been schooled in prayer and had been taught not to question its results. The historic first morning finally came. My wife and I got up a little extra early so we would be sure to be wide awake and happy. Our initial approach must meet with success. We entered each bedroom singing and happy at the thought of the prospects before us. Purposely, we went to one special bedroom first. Here slept a daughter who would be able to get up early but who couldn't wake up before noon. We sat her up in bed and then went to the others and started them all into the family room. Some stumbled, some fell, some had to be carried in, some slept through that first morning, and I might say, might say through subsequent mornings too. Little by little we've learned over the years what reading the scriptures 15 minutes each morning can do for our family. You should know that we don't try to discuss and understand each point we read. We try to pick out only a couple of thoughts each morning to digest. You should also know we still have to struggle with the plan's performance, even though we now have only two children at our home. Can you imagine how a parent would feel to ask a little girl, What did King Benjamin mean when he said, When ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God? And she would respond, I suppose he means that I shouldn't be selfish and should do little things for my sisters because it makes Heavenly Father happy. And Daddy, I want him to be happy with me, so I'm going to try harder. Innumerable are the blessings that will accrue to this family who persist in this noble effort of reading the scriptures together daily. Remember, he said, Learn of me and listen to my words Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. This is a peace that surpasseth all understanding, a peace and a security that will support us through any time and any trial, a peace that will dispel the spirit of fear in a confused world. May the Lord bless us with the understanding and dedication not to offend his little ones. May he strengthen us with a resolve to teach them of him in our homes through the simple experiences of the gospel. May he bless us to understand his words, 
When ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I am grateful for the privilege of attending this inspirational conference, and I am confident that the answers to many of today's pressing problems are to be found in the messages being given by our leaders. A week ago, the Christian world was celebrating Easter, commemorating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, one of the most important events that has ever taken place on this earth. Easter time is indeed a forceful reminder that the human spirit cannot be confined. It does not deny the reality of death, but it offers us an assurance that God has preserved life beyond the grave. It is interesting to note, however, that the restored gospel, as taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, encompasses the belief of a literal resurrection which is radically different from the concept taught by most Christian churches and other faiths. President Grant often told how several hundred ministers were asked, Do you believe that after you die, you will live again as a conscious entity, knowing and being known as you are? No doubt all of these ministers had conducted Easter services. But in answering, none actually believed in a literal resurrection as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches. It seems to be the nature of mankind not to accept things they cannot explain, and no man can explain the resurrection. But neither can man explain how life came to be. But who denies that we live? If we gave up everything we cannot explain, we would have to give up life. But he who has given us life has assured us of life hereafter. Which is more difficult, to be born or to rise again? That we should live forever is no greater miracle than that we should live at all. Throughout the centuries, philosophies and theories have been advanced by men relative to the resurrection. But none have seemed to satisfy the hearts and minds of honest searchers of truth. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ explains that we existed as spirit entities before being born in this sphere of activity. Yes, spirit children of our Father in heaven. We came to this earth for our spirits to receive bodies of flesh and bones and to receive experiences to see if we will do all things whatsoever the Lord shall command us. And birth and death in this world are steps in eternal life, birth being a transition from our pre-existent state to this earth life, and death being a transition into the next sphere of activity. At death, the spirit leaves our earthly body until the morning of the resurrection. Through modern revelation, we learn that the spirit and the body are the soul of man, and the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul, and the redemption of the soul is through him that quickeneth all things. As a result of the fall, Adam and Eve suffered the penalty of spiritual and physical death. But as Adam said, Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression, 
my eyes are open, and in this life I shall have joy, and again in the flesh I shall see God. And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed, and never should have known good and evil, and the joy of our redemption and eternal life, which God giveth unto all the obedient. The fall thus provides a mean whereby mankind can choose between good and evil, and thus prepare for life after death. What we do here, then, determines to a considerable extent what will be, we will be doing in the life after death. The Lord has told us that whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. And we believe that through the atonement of Christ all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. It was Christ's right to be the redeemer of mankind, and though it required sacrifice beyond our comprehension, he made the sacrifice voluntarily. He said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. The Savior had a consuming desire to do his Father's will, and a great love of his Father's children, whose Redeemer he became. Thus Jesus not only atoned for Adam's transgression, but for the sins of all mankind. However, we must remember that redemption from individual sins depends upon individual effort. Matthew relates that the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his, the Savior's, resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Today the resurrection is real to us for similar reasons. Christ and some of his ancient saints have appeared in this dispensation as resurrected beings. From a revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith, we learn that there are two kinds of beings in heaven, namely angels who are resurrected personages, having bodies of flesh and bones. For instance, Jesus said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Secondly, the spirits of just men made perfect, they who are not yet resurrected, but inherit the same glory. That Christ's resurrection was truly a reality was clearly demonstrated in this dispensation in Joseph Smith's first vision, when he said, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spoke unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son, hear him. This testimony is again given by the prophet Joseph Smith in a vision to him in Sidney Rigdon, wherein the prophet relates, And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, 
This is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God. And we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. The Savior appeared to Joseph Smith as he did to the apostles in the upper room when he invited them to handle him and see, lest they think him to be a spirit. He said, A spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Yes, the message of Easter time is that Christ is alive today, that many of the saints have been resurrected, that in all men will enjoy a literal resurrection of the earthly body with the spirit. Ancient and modern scriptures make it clear that all men will be resurrected, but only those that accept Jesus Christ and his gospel and keep his commandments will receive the greater blessings of eternal salvation. The Savior has indicated that the dead shall awake, for their graves shall be opened, and they shall come forth, yea, even all, and the righteous shall be gathered on my right hand unto eternal life, and the wicked on my left hand will I be ashamed to own before the Father. One can see the significance and purpose of this life with the perspective the gospel plan gives. The restored gospel gives us an understanding of where we came from, the importance of birth, death, and a literal resurrection of our earthly body, as, where, as well as where we will go after this life. By the power of the Holy Ghost, I bear you my witness that I know that God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, live. And I know that Joseph Smith was the instrument in the hands of the Lord in restoring the gospel in its fullness. And it was through the prophet Joseph Smith that the power to act in the name of God was restored to this earth by resurrected beings. I also testify that President Spencer W. Kimball is a prophet of God, acting under divine guidance in administering the affairs of the kingdom of God on this earth. The Lord has said that it is work and glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And he has said, if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. With the understanding of the gospel which we have, may we all work for eternal life, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. A few months ago, I read with considerable interest an article that appeared in one of the issues of Scouting magazine under the title, Be Prepared for Life. That took me back to my boyhood days, and I remembered that I could hardly wait for the time to arrive when I would be old enough to become a Boy Scout. Finally, that time did arrive, and I came under the influence of some very dedicated leaders. They taught me what it meant to say, On my honor, I will do my best. And I learned that the scout motto, be prepared, 
meant that I should strive diligently on a continuous basis to try to so develop myself physically, mentally, socially, morally, and spiritually that I would be prepared for whatever came my way. Those were choice days, those scouting days. And I had the opportunity to participate in many exciting activities. They were teamed up with some very choice spiritual experiences in my home and in the church, particularly in the Aaronic priesthood, the Sunday school, and the MIA. As a result, the horizons of my understanding were pushed back, and I gained a more complete understanding than I had had up to that point of the purpose and the meaning of life. I learned that this life is not the beginning, neither is it the end of our existence, but that we lived before we came to this earth in a pre-existent world as spiritual children of our Father in heaven, that we came to this earth to obtain mortal bodies and to prove ourselves by demonstrating that we would keep the commandments, be obedient, no matter how difficult the tests here in life might be. Now, with this broadening of my base, my brothers and sisters, the base of my understanding, I came to realize that the most important business of this life is to prepare for eternal life, which, as the Lord has said, is the greatest of all of God's gifts to His children. Let me share with you some of the words of the Nephite prophet Alma on this matter. For behold, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the time for men to perform their labors. And now, as I said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that ye do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. And we see that death comes upon mankind, yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek, which is a temporal death. Nevertheless, there was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Book of Mormon contains some comments and some very significant predictions of the prophet Nephi relative to conditions that have existed in these the latter days. Let me share some of his statements with respect thereto. Nephi said, There shall be many which shall teach false and vain and foolish doctrines, and their works shall be in the dark. He also said that in these latter days Satan would rage in the hearts of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. Others he will pacify and lull away into carnal security and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. Others he will flattereth away and telleth them there is no hell and no devil. And thus he whispereth in their ears until he grasps them with his awful chains from which there is no deliverance. I should like to emphasize, my brothers and sisters, that those words of Nephi 
apply to some members of our Church today and not just to some individuals who are not members of our Church. And may I suggest that all of us do some soul-searching on that matter and make whatever corrections are necessary to get back on course. It has been said that when the time to perform arrives, the time to prepare has passed. Now, while that is true in many situations, it is not universally the case. Those of you who have taken part in athletic competition, particularly in track and field events, know that while an individual goes to great pains and puts in many hours of hard work trying to build a strong base from which he might be able to perform at his best, the actual pre preparation actually continues during the competition, right during the performance time. So we need to keep that in mind, too. This is not just a once-over deal. It's something that can be added upon from time to time. Those of you who know that, or who, who uh, have participated in jumping or throwing events in track and field, know that a competitor is not eliminated after one attempt. He gets three tries at a certain height, or three broad jumps, and so on before his competition has ended. And those who take part in distance racing, they go around the track a number of times before the race has ended. May I suggest that the foregoing also applies to our opportunities to prepare for eternity, provided we do not procrastinate our repentance until the end. In life, we can alter our course through repentance, get back on course, and proceed vigorously to, toward that great goal of eternal life. Let me emphasize that if we are to qualify for eternal life, we must perform righteously in this life. We must strive diligently to make the most of our mortal lives and to be valiant in the service of the Master. And let me emphasize that the sooner we get started on making the most of our mortal life, the better it will be. And this, of course, brings into focus the important roles and responsibilities that parents, teachers, and leaders have with respect to getting young people started outright. Because it certainly is true that as the twig is bent, so is the tree inclined. But this also points out the responsibility that each individual has to chart a course in life that is in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one can begin to serve the Lord too early. Alma, in counseling his son Helaman, said this, Oh, remember, my son, and learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. Hans Christian Andersen our great fairy story writer said this, Time is so fleeting that if we do not remember God in our youth, age may find us incapable of thinking of Him. It certainly is true that youth is the time to build a strong physical, mental, moral, and spiritual base, to prepare for missionary service and for temple marriage, to establish challenging goals and to experience the satisfaction that comes from worthy achievement. Let me emphasize also that preparation is not just a personal matter. 
Every individual, of course, has the responsibility to put his or her own life in order. But we have responsibilities to others also. Teachers do, leaders do, and certainly parents do. Parents have the responsibility to every individual member of their families. They should put their households in order and do all possible to prepare those family members so that every member can qualify for eternal life. Family preparedness in all of its aspects, spiritual and temporal, is of the utmost importance because the family is eternal. And when we think about getting exaltation in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, we actually should remember that we are thinking about, or should be thinking about, family exaltation because that's what that will be. Some individuals seem to feel that there is no need for haste in the observance of gospel principles and in keeping the commandments. However, those who refuse to serve the Lord early are forsaken in their hour of trouble. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, verse 7, we read the following, quote, They were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble. Let me conclude, my brothers and sisters, by emphasizing that no matter who we are, no matter what our age or circumstances may be, we all have the same starting point as of right now, and that starting point is now. I've always appreciated the words contained in our LDS song, Improve the Shining Moments. Time flies on wings of lightning. We cannot call it back. It comes and passes quickly along its onward track. And if we are not mindful, the chance will fade away, for life is quick in passing, tis as a single day. President Joseph Fielding Smith, in his April 1969 conference message, said that procrastination as applied to gospel principles is the thief of eternal life. Do we want to gain eternal life, my brothers and sisters, to be exalted in the highest degree in the celestial kingdom? If so, are we willing to pay the price? And what is the price? Elder McConkie covered that beautifully in his wonderful presentation here today. We must keep all the law, all the commandments. I want to emphasize that because I feel it's important, my brothers and sisters, that each of us have a personal interview with ourselves periodically and check up on ourselves and get back on course. As I have visited the stakes and toured some of the missions, I have noted some danger signals which indicate to me that we have many people in the church and perhaps most of us would be in this category, at least to some extent, who are not doing as well as they could, they're not doing what they should, as well as they should, and must do if they and their loved ones are to gain eternal life. I testify to you that the things that we have heard in this conference, my brothers and sisters, the things that I have just said, are true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true. It is to be lived. It's my humble prayer that all of us will rededicate ourselves to doing the kind of a job that we are capable of doing and attain to the joy and the happiness 
in eternity that is there for us, for us if we will just do our part. And this I do in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We live in a world where almost no one knows anything for sure. The world seems to be, or seems to delight in jumping from one theory to the next. <clears throat> but that which was thought and purported to be the hope of the world only yesterday often turns out to become the bane of the world today. A miracle drug used to treat the discomforts of pregnancy was found to cause deformity in the offspring. The war to end wars merely spawned the next conflict. It seems we seem to be eternally searching for answers in new programs. But of course, there is no answer in a new program. We're looking for secret potions uh, to prolong life, uh, to maintain youth, end suffering, eliminate fatigue, and abolish work. Of course, if the truth were understood, the things that we're trying to get rid of are the very things that we ought to have. Suffering is essential. Learned he obedience for the things which he suffered. And how great it is to be able to get tired enough to sleep soundly. The glory of work cannot be overemphasized. The satisfaction of a difficult task successfully completed or accomplished is one of the greatest satisfactions that we know in this life. The fulfillment of old age, looking back on a full life, the serenity of understanding gained by long experience makes old age a golden, glorious time of life. Yes, our society is one that is leaping from one fantasy into the next, grasping for happiness, hoping against hope, with faith in some new program. But there is no magic in programs. It matters not from whence they come. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is being lionized today in many quarters. Articles like Utah's Shining Oasis in the National Geographic or when the saints go singing in in the Reader's Digest, make the church look almost as good as it really is. <laughs> also, the sincerest form of flattery has other churches copying our church programs. The Family Home Evening program is being copied by other churches, even down to using the same manual. There's a feeling that they can have the same results if they use the same program, but it will not work. The vitality of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not in the programs of the Church, but in the doctrines of the Church. I have a very good friend who served as a congregational minister for over 26 years. He had one of the largest churches on Long Island, New York at one time. He became acquainted with the Mormons by visiting Salt Lake City and having missionaries visit with him in his home. He developed a great admiration for the Church because of the fruits that he saw that were produced by the Church. So he thought that he would borrow these uh, programs and adopt them into his own church, which he tried to do, but he found that they did not work. His statement to me was, it was somewhat of a jolt to discover that the genius of Mormonism was in its theology, not in its methodology, and that the amazing vitality of the church sprang from the commitment of its members to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ received by revelation. It became obvious that one could not have the fruits of Mormonism without its roots. I am convinced that others who are attempting the same thing today will ultimately arrive at the same conclusion. The Family Home Evening Program, the Youth Activity Program, the Young Adult Program, the Building Program, Welfare Program, Relief Society Programs will not produce for others. The programs will not work for other churches. The magic is not in the program. It is in the theology. We can help them set up the program 
but we cannot guarantee them success. A correct understanding and testimony of our relationship to God is the foundation of success in the programs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The programs are inspired of the Lord, but only to those who know where they came from, who know why they are here, and who know where they are going after they leave this mortal life. These are those who have a testimony. In other words, those who know that God is our Father, know that we are begotten sons and daughters made eternally in His image, and also know that because He is our Father, we not only call Him Father, but we expect Him to help us to become as He is, realizing that children become like their parents. Those who have a testimony know that the Son, Jesus Christ, is our elder brother. He is a God, however, He is not His own Father, but a Son of the Father, and the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind, the mediator between God and man. There is no magic or confusion or mystery in this. Those who have a testimony know that God, our Father, does not leave us without guidance on this earth today, but He has given us a living prophet to reveal the mind of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and the will of the Lord for His children today. Those who have a testimony know that it is the desire of the Father that every man might speak in the name of God, the Lord, even the Savior of the world. Therefore, He has once again given authority to man on earth to act for Him that by this authority or priesthood man has authority to baptize, to lay on hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, to heal the sick, cast out devils, speak with new tongues, and in general show forth the signs that Jesus said would always follow the believers. Further, they know that by this same authority or priesthood a man and woman are married not until death do they part, but for all eternity. For whatsoever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. When these truths are not only believed but indelibly etched upon the hearts of a man, woman, or a child by the Holy Ghost, then the programs that the Lord established on the earth to allow His children to grow in light and knowledge and experience become a living, vital part of the pathway to immortality and eternal life. These programs do not run by themselves. They are made to work by people. And every program requires sacrifice, just as Elder McConkie has so eloquently said. It seems that we are eternally having to do that which we may not particularly want to do to bring to pass the purposes of God among His children on earth. The real secret of success of the Lord's program here on earth, or anywhere else for that matter, is sacrifice. It is through sacrifice, that, and this only, said the prophet Joseph Smith, that God has ordained that men should enjoy eternal life. And it is through the medium of the sacrifice of all earthly things that men do actually know that they are doing the things that are well-pleasing in the sight of God. For a man to lay down his all, his character, his reputation, his honor and applause, his good name among men, his houses, his lands, his brothers and sisters, his wife and children, even his own life also, accounting all things but filth and dross for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, requires more than mere belief or supposition that he is doing the will of God but actual knowledge, realizing that when these sufferings are ended, he will enter into eternal rest and be a partaker of the glory of God." Unquote. The theory or the theology of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is such that you cannot be passive. If Joseph Smith's claims are true that God the Father and the Son did appear to him and did in fact talk to him and give him commandments for all mankind, if a heavenly messenger Moroni 
an angel of the Lord did visit him and deliver an ancient record written on gold plates containing the fullness of the gospel as delivered by Jesus Christ himself to the ancient inhabitants of this land of North and South America. I say if John the Baptist did return on the 15th of May, 1829, and restore the authority to baptize and have it accepted by the Lord, if Peter, James, and John... John did return to restore the Melchizedek priesthood with authority to perform all ordinances and bind on earth and be bound in heaven, just as though Jesus had done it himself in person. I say if these things are true, then everyone should know about it, for they were done for the blessing of all of God's children. Three and a half million Latter-day Saints bear witness that they know these claims are true. And because they know it, they live their lives in harmony with the direction that comes from the living prophet of God. When he advises them to hold family home evening, approximately 500,000 Latter-day Saint families gather their children around them every week to talk about the goodness of the Lord to them, their love for him, for their neighbor, and for each other. They strive to live so as to secure the blessings of a kind and loving Heavenly Father to themselves and their children. Tithing has been an integral part of the Lord's program since the days of Abraham and before. Thus, the Bible scriptures contain abundant evidence of this eternal principle. And so, all churches that accept the Bible as their sacred record should live this principle. But none even approach that which is the norm in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Why do 19,000 of our young men and women accept a call to leave their home, their families, their schools, their friends, and go into the nations of the world, many times under very hostile conditions. Surely not for monetary reward, they pay their own way, not to secure position or power or worldly acclaim, but only to share the truth of the message of the restoration, the roots of Mormonism with the children of our Heavenly Father. I ask, why do they do it? They do it because they know they have the answer to all the world's problems, particularly man's inhumanity to man is the gospel, the good news that Jesus lives and has once again spoken from the heavens, has come again to establish his church in all of its fullness. Even as Peter prophesied that he would when he said, Repent ye therefore and become converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send again Jesus Christ, who before was preached unto you, but whom the heavens must receive until the time of the restitution of all things, spoken of by the mouth, by God by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. No, the power or vitality is not in the programs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is in the theology. You cannot have the fruits of Mormonism without having the roots of Mormonism. And the root is a testimony, a witness borne by the Spirit to our heart. It is not the program, but people with a certain knowledge of God and their relationship to him burning in their hearts that brings about success in the activities of the kingdom. This is the strength and the vitality of Mormonism. I am a witness that these things are true. I know they're true. I know that God is our Father and that he lives and that he hears and answers prayers. I know and bear witness to you that Jesus is the Christ and that he lives, that this is his true church, for he has reestablished it upon the earth in our own day and time through this great prophet Joseph Smith, wonderful man that he was, 
and that we have a prophet of God on earth today. Yes, Spencer W. Kimball is a prophet of the living God, and he makes the decisions in the church and kingdom of God and gives forth the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, just as he has done in this conference. And I bear witness that if we will follow the prophet, we will have blessings unnumbered, and that the programs of the church will work, for they will bring people to an understanding of their responsibility to their Heavenly Father as well as to their fellow man, and they'll love to carry out these assignments. This is the Church of Jesus Christ, and He runs His Church. I bear this record in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.